definitely a high Sabbath. Not only did we get to celebrate Nikki's profession of faith, but we also get to hear the story of our beloved sister, Nico Hess. Um, We've had a few conversations. Why don't you come on up, Nico? Um, As we've been figuring out how to collaborate on this, this kind of sermon time today. So she'll be sharing her story, which I've been remarkably blessed to explore and probe. Now, I'm sorry, since you weren't in those conversations, you didn't get all the bonus features, um, but you get the gold, the cream of the crop here. Uh, Nico's really put her heart into this, and I'm really grateful to have her. So, um, Nico, the time is yours. Now, in my life, I have spoken before hundreds of people, but not about myself, so... This is a little different. When Pastor Austin asked me to tell my story, my head screamed, no, no way. But then I thought, you know, what Jesus has done for me is an incredible story. So I said, okay, and I'll probably cry during some of this. So here's my story. We'll start out with Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. My mother used to say this, and I am old. My biological father was a young American soldier serving in the Korean War in the early 50s. During the war, he was a soldier, and he knew nothing of me. He does not know any, did not know anything of me. Another American soldier was a Seventh-day Adventist medic in Seoul, and on leave, he would go to the orphanage and help with all the babies and the young children there, and there were a lot of them. It was a Seventh-day Adventist orphanage. It was run by Dr. Rue. He kept writing to his parents and saying, there's so many babies over here. We have to have one. We have to adopt one. He had already picked me out. It took them four years to get approved to bring me over and to adopt me. I was four years old when I arrived here. My first memory is of this lady in a blue suit hanging onto my hand so hard it hurt, and she handed me over to my new parents, my new mom. My new parents were already getting old, and their six children were already having babies, getting married and having babies. So I was the young one. Home life was pretty chaotic for me. My new mother was beautiful. She was gentle and kind and nurturing and loving and just adored me. My father, not so much. I remember her reading the Bible and praying a lot. I'd walk past the bedroom or the living room, and she'd be on her knees. My father was gruff, angry, abusive, didn't like me very much. I was afraid, and I cried a lot. But I learned to speak English very quickly. My mother was a school teacher, first grade, by the way. And I would sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, at the top of my lungs. I knew that Jesus loved me, and I loved Jesus. I started first grade at a nearby public school. We lived outside of Sandpoint in a place called Edgemere. 
And um, there was a little public school there. And one of the very first weeks that I was there, this little bratty boy came up to me. He knew I was a vegetarian. And he tried to force a bologna sandwich down my throat. And I came home crying, and my mother immediately pulled me out of that school. And I went to Sandpoint Seventh-day Adventist School. I already knew about the health message. I wasn't very confident as a kid. My mother would say, oh, you're beautiful and lovely and, and was so proud of me. And I followed her everywhere, in the garden, everywhere she went, I went. My father, not so much. The other side of the story was that I was dumb and ugly. I was baptized at 11 years old in Moses Lake, Washington. And I have to say that because I love it. It was Moses Lakes, Washington. <laughs> and I loved Jesus so much. He was my best friend. My mother started teaching church school, and she was the last call for a school that didn't have a teacher. So we never knew where we were going to be until August. And we moved around a lot every year. From the time I was nine until I was 16, we were at a different um, school or a different city or a different town. Then I went to boarding school, boarding academy in Laurelwood Academy in Oregon. And um, there I spent two years. And then I went to Hawaiian Mission Academy. Some missionaries had come over and were telling us about the needs in Hawaii. And they came to our academy and was, um, I raised my hand and said, yes, I'd like to uh, be a missionary. So they invited me and I got to spend a year, my senior year in, in uh, academy in Hawaii, in Hawaii. We did a lot of door-to-door. We did Great Controversy, Desire of Ages, tracks, everything. And I got to know Honolulu fairly well. I graduated from Hawaiian Mission Academy, and I went to Andrews University. And there I was supposed to find my preacher husband. Well, I didn't. Instead, I went the worldly way. I married a man that was worldly, and I found out later also a drug addict, and was an unfaithful husband. And we moved to Portland, Oregon, and we went the way of the world together. I did a lot of worldly things, not so, not so many good things. Um, and it was about social status for me, how I looked, how I dressed, how you know everything. Um, and I always had two voices in my head. You're bad, you're not good, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. I went to nursing school and became a registered nurse, and I specialized in emergency care. Then we moved to Dallas, Texas, and I had the opportunity to open an emergency room there from scratch, from the tile on the floor, until the first patient came in during open house. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. And it was a new hospital, and it was just um, all, all about that. That's all I did was work. There was no church, no Bible, no Jesus, no spirituality for several years there. But I still had an emptiness in me and a longing for something that I thought maybe I'd known before. Then we moved to Los Angeles. We got married, moved to Los Angeles, and I became a workaholic and a drug addict and went the way of the world. But I didn't eat pork, and I wouldn't eat bacon. So that health message was deep. And often on Saturdays, I would think, this is Sabbath. 
and most of my family's at church. In my quest, I dabbled in all the occult things, the New Age stuff, the worship stuff, everything from myself, nothing about Jesus. And on, uh, I knew that my family would be at church, but I still just kept on searching and doing those things that I did. My fer- first marriage fell apart, and we divorced, and I was single for quite some time. I did nothing to fill the emptiness except work. And for several years, I just worked, and I also became a very heavy uh, addict. And when I came home, I got high and just did a lot of things. Finally, on New Year's of 1995, New Year's Eve, about 9 o'clock in the evening, I was going, i got to do something different. This is just, you know, this is not who I want to be. I hit bottom. I was strung out. I weighed 95 pounds, maybe 95 pounds. And I had missed so much work, I knew I was going to be fired the next day. I just wanted to start over. And during the time, I had tried some AA and some recovery groups and tried to get myself together. Nothing worked. I forgot about Jesus. I wanted to start this new year special, brand new, start over. At 11.55, I called a friend of mine that I knew was a drug counselor. She had tried to help me along the way throughout the years. And I told her, I said, I'm ready and I'm done. And she said, hold on, don't run, sit tight, I'll be there. So she got there and I started praying. First time in many years. Dear Jesus, please help me. Take this demon away from me. First time I'd prayed in a while. She got to me, and she took me home. And then I began my journey back to sobriety and to Jesus. I self-reported to the nursing board. They took my license for six months. But during that time, I attended a lot of meetings, went to, went to a lot of recovery classes and nurse support groups. And one day, I picked up the Bible, which happened to be sitting at my friend's coffee table, And my hands were shaking because I hadn't touched one in a really long time. And when I opened it, it was the 23rd Psalm. And I read the 23rd Psalm and, and just sat there and cried and prayed. She got home, and we went to my apartment, picked up my stuff because they were going to lock the door the next day. A couple of years later, in AA, I met my second husband, And he had been going to AA, who is an alcoholic. And we started going to the Methodist church together. And that was sweet. I enjoyed it. It was was touchy-feely. And they talked about Jesus. And it wasn't about the gospel that I knew growing up in this church. They didn't say anything about the second coming and Jesus coming back down here to this earth and picking us up. So I thought, hmm, okay, well... But I enjoyed this, uh, the, the camaraderie, camaraderie and the people that were at the church. Then we moved to Sacramento. And I continued to work all the time, pretty much day and night. That was my love, was my work. And one night I came home and my husband said to me, didn't you used to go to a church on Saturday? And I said, yes. And he uh, why do you ask? And he said, well, I'm going to be baptized in that church on Saturday. 
I had no idea that he was taking studies. So I went to his baptism, lots of tears, and once again, Jesus talked to my heart. And soon after, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he died in my arms at Christmas. He and my current husband, David, were best friends. So David was at our house all the time, eating. He was single. He was, um, you know, my husband's buddy and did a lot of things together. And so I kind of knew him a little bit. And my husband was volunteering at the food pantry where David was the director in uh, uh, Sacramento. And um, after my husband died, I was pretty dark, and uh, David came to the memorial, and I didn't see him for about a year and a half. Then I decided to go back to go to church. Some ladies there um, had uh, uh, invited me, and so I was going to church there um, in Carmichael for quite a while, for a while. And I saw David at the potluck, and it was a huge room like this, and the Carmichael Church was very big, so there was a, it was a huge potluck, and it was, went all afternoon. And I happened to look over there, and there was David. He was walking around, going to the table, and he caught my eye. And he came over to the table, and I'm holding my plate of food like this. And he came over, and I went like this. <laughs> Gave him a hug and spilled food all over his nice suit. And I said, hi, I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> How come you haven't called? <laughs> and he said, well, it's going to give you some time. And I said, well, it's, it's been some time. So we cleaned him up, and he asked me if he could um, call me. So he called, and we talked for a couple hours the very first time we talked, just him and I. And so we started dating, and then he asked me to marry him, and I said yes. And uh, during the time that we were dating... We both really uh, came back to the church. We both uh, were just really excited to be a part of, and we got to hear the message again, and we got to hear about Jesus coming again, and we were just so happy. And then one day he sits down in a chair at my table, and he goes like this, and I knew it was coming. He was going to ask me to marry him. And so he says, will you marry me? And I said, on two conditions. <laughs> Like, are really conditions? And I said, yes, one, that we move out of the city, and two, that we come back to church and be rebaptized. And he says, I can go for that. So we moved to Boise, Idaho, and we started going to church there, and we got very active and very involved with that church. And in six months, we were rebaptized. And my mouth is kind of dry. The moment I came out of the water, Something changed in me. My life changed. My thoughts changed. For me, it was about relearning everything that I had left behind and everything that I had forgotten. I just couldn't get enough. Anytime there was a spare moment, I was listening to sermons, listening to beautiful Sabbath music, and reading and talking about Jesus. So I stand before you, a changed person, and my mom it was a very praying person. I used to, walk, like I said, walk by and see her praying, and she was on her knees. And every night she would pray for her six kids, name by name. And finally, thank you very much. Finally, she would say my name, and I could relax, because she said my name. 
Unfortunately, she passed, and she didn't know, she doesn't know, that I have come back to the church, to the church that she loved and that I love. So I'll end with my mother's favorite verse. Thank you. My mother's favorite verse was this, I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. Thank you for letting me share. Amen. Who's glad Nico's here with us? I'm so happy that uh, God has brought you a long journey, through a long journey to our church here, Nico. And David, I'm glad you guys have each other. Um, I look forward to getting to know you a little more as a couple, but I've learned some fun things about just by talking with Nico. Um, I titled my, my I'm not going to preach a whole sermon, by the way. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be more of a sermonette. Um, I titled it Fool's Gold because as I was listening to Nico share her story, it sounded like as a young child, um, she had been given gold by her mother, her mother's love. Uh, she shared with me that in times her um, mom would just wrap her up in her arms in a warm embrace. And then there would be a deep contrast interacting with her father. Her father would make fun of her eyes and say mean things, names, while her mom would say, you're beautiful. You have beautiful eyes and you have beautiful hair. And it's this, as I perceive, this beautiful love of God through her mother became a stabilizing and, and strengthening force as she grew up amidst the, the storminess of her father. And yet... That little voice, as she mentioned earlier, there were two voices, one saying she was bad and one saying she was good. That little voice still kind of chattered. And what she didn't share um, is that in high school, that little voice would chatter and saying, you're not good enough. And she'd see the popular kids with their clothes and their apparent self-assurance and confidence and intellect. And, and that voice in her mind would say, you're not smart. You're dumb. You're too shy. You're not this. You're not that. And her mind began to look for ways to supplement that. And which, by the time she got to college, was something that led to her choice to marry this worldly man and date this worldly man instead of the, the preacher man that her parents hoped her to meet. And what she ended up with was a lot of fool's gold. And if you've ever gone to the river, you can see a lot of pretty fool's gold in the dirt, and it's beautiful, but it's not going to be worth anything if you were trying to sell it. And uh, in essence, what Nico experiences is something everybody experiences. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, trying to supplement for what God wanted to give us. And in the process... We traded the gold we had in God for the, the fool's gold of our own manuf the things we own manufactured of our own abilities or what we would gain from someone else. And this goes all the way back to Eden, the very first time <clears throat> humanity purchased fool's gold with the cost of their worship. You think, what... What could compel someone to do such a thing? 
Well, we all know because we have made trade-offs, trading God's way for a human way many times, for much less, haven't we? But in the garden, they traded God's gift of a perfect world with all the fruit trees they could ever desire, with purpose, with, it, with giftings to create a beautiful garden of their own creativity. They traded all that for what the serpent had offered, knowledge, for a knowledge. That's what they traded it for, to know everything and be gods themselves. And no one, we're not trying to be gods here. We don't ever have such a lofty intent. We know that's not possible. But we can take the reins of our lives in a way that creates, how would you put it? That can create strain, stress, anxiety, pride, greed, fear. But if you were to just give the reins to God and let him drive then those things would dissipate, for God is sufficient. God is all we need. Now, we, there's another uh, comparison that I'd like to make to what happened in the Garden of Eden. I'd like to compare it with what happened in the wilderness when Jesus was fasting for 40 days. Jesus encountered similar temptations as Adam and Eve, and yet he chose a different path. Uh, the serpent, in the form of an angel... Uh, Lucifer, in the form of a beautiful angel of light, offered a, king, a kingdom. He offered, he told Jesus, make bread for yourself. He told Jesus to assure himself that he is the son of God by jumping off a building to watch God, the Father, protect him. And an offer was made to Jesus to trade what the Father had affirmed in him since he was young for this tangible, supposedly tangible proof or assurance or security. And he met the same moment of decision that Adam and Eve did, but he encountered and approached it in a very different way. He said, a plain thus saith the Lord. Because everybody knows when you're hungry, you're not thinking straight. <laughs> well, that probably wasn't exactly his issue though he was very hungry, it says. But he said, thus saith the Lord, to keep his mind focused on what was true and what was real. And it was that alone that he depended on in this moment of true temptation. He True temptation. And so instead of trading off the word of God for the word of the devil, he called out the devil as the liar he is, and settled himself on the world, the word, and and weathered that moment of temptation. And there's there's so much to be said about the influence of our own thoughts, the words we have in our minds. Nico mentioned there was a word from her father and a word from her mother, and one built her up and one tore her down. Words can be like bullets. They can hurt or they could protect. And we need to be mindful what words are guiding our minds and our hearts. 
there's a, a passage we're going to read a little bit of in, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, where uh, a young 30-year-old prophet named Ezekiel is encountered with quite a spooky vision. In this vision, he is brought to a valley of dry bones, like a desert. These bones are bone dry. They're cracked. And this isn't a nightmare. This is actually a hopeful dream that God is giving him. But to understand it a little better, I'll give a 60-second backdrop to this passage. When Ezekiel was one day sitting outside a refugee camp in Babylon by a river, he was contemplating life, and then God gave him a vision. He gave him a vision that had four creatures with four faces with fiery wheels beneath them, and on the top of them was a throne, and on the throne it was God. And this was strange because he thought, wasn't God supposed to be in the temple? Why is he here in Babylon? Well, he would be given another vision. He'd be given given a vision of the church leaders of Israel bowing down to idols in the temple of God and women worshiping the God called Tammuz. This, This incredible this shock would take over him as he's viewing the most heinous thing he could imagine, one of them, of God's people worshiping an idol in the temple. And this vision kind of is the last vision in Ezekiel until chapter 37. Everything that happens between that is, is, a, is in two, two paths. One path, God describes judgment over his people, the nation, and the world. But in the second path is a path of hope. He says, after all these things, there is still hope. Though things have been destroyed, the people have been exiled, your people have been scattered, there is still hope. And we come to verse 37, the first vision since then, where he's giving hope to his people. He's giving hope to his people. And I'd like to start off here in verse 2. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, they were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. Again he said to me, prophecy to these bones. Now we'll pause there. To emphasize verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4 here. Verse 3, Ezekiel is given a question. Can these bones live? The obvious answer is in and of themselves is no. But God's trying to make a point. And Ezekiel caught on to that point. Because he knew God was much more powerful than any human could fathom. And he said, Lord, you know. You know. And I like to sit on this for a moment. We know what God can do. We know he has a heart for us. But if we don't ponder and reflect and meditate on what we know about God, you know what will fill our minds? 
everything outside of God. And we'll depend on those things. So instead of when God calls us to step out in faith, and he says, is it possible I could do this in you, or I could do this through you, or I could do this for the ones you love, in your family, in your, the lives of your friends, instead of saying, I don't know how you could do it, God. You say, you know, God. You know how you can do it. And the first thing God says then, after Ezekiel responds, is he says, prophecy to these bones. He is going to do it through the word. Through the word. And he's going to use Ezekiel to do it. He's going to use Ezekiel preaching the word to bring these bones to life. Let's continue verse 4. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. Now notice, he's telling Ezekiel to preach the word. But is it the preaching that puts the flesh and sinews on the skeletons and the bones? Is it the preaching? It is not the preaching. The preaching is involved. It's part of it. What does it is the power of God. The pattern of this book, this chapter, which we're not going to go through, all the verses that, that encapsulate this pattern, but the pattern is God saying, I will. I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. And then you will. So we're going to read a few of those. But we already have here, he's saying, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And we know he can do this because as creator God, he speaks and that which wasn't suddenly exists. He speaks into existence things that were not. Into a void, he speaks life. And that is a, the hope of humanity, that God would speak life into our minds. I love how Ellen White describes the fall of Adam and Eve as a, a losing of this power from God. It says, as soon as they, they ate the fruit, they no longer had a desire for good. And they were like a, a out-of-tune note in, in a piano, in the piano of heaven. Uh, uh, and you've, you've all had a friend or seen somebody who just seems like a dissident note in the group. Maybe it was a group project at school, and they're just the ones not pulling their weight. And maybe they were the ones making inappropriate jokes or just kind of being grumpy. Adam and Eve became a, dis, a dissident dissonant note in heaven and so no matter what they did whether it was to refine their mind or their behavior or their manners Ellen White points out that would never be enough they need a living power working within and don't we know this as Adventists we have a lot of truth as Christians we have a lot of truth but we've all encountered the the reality that knowing does not always translate to doing. And even doing does not translate to being. Does that make sense? 
We can do a lot of things. It doesn't mean we are those character traits. It doesn't mean we have them. And so Ellen White says something beautiful. She says, we need a grace working within to resurrect the, the, um, the lifeless faculties of the soul. In other words, the capacities to love, the capacities to service, the capacities to joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. God can alone bring to life those capacities in you and afford you the opportunity to choose that way. And it's not a choose this or die kind of thing. This is a a gift because it's miserable living for yourself. It's miserable living toward for the expectations of others in the world. And God offers a way that we're, it's his word that matters and if we follow his word he will bring to life a desire for good and an attraction to him. So if ever you felt indifferent or that your devotions were dry, you just tell that to God and say, Lord, I'm going to worship you. It's not the way you deserve, but I know you're worthy of worship. Please draw me. Create that desire in me. Only he can do that. Why? Because he is the creator and designer of us. I'd like to reread Isaiah 43.1. As we're wrapping up right here. 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Bonner's Ferry, church, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. In verse 4, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I love you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Now, can you think of a time God gave a man for our life? He gave Jesus. He gave Jesus because he wanted us to be saved and he wanted us to understand who he is. Because without God, we have nothing. We have nothing. The Lord is the only one. And besides him, there's no other savior. There's no other solution to our problems. And he's proclaimed it over and over again in our lives and he'll never stop till our final breath proclaiming that any God or idol but him will lead us to disappointment. But he will never disappoint. And so we are witnesses of this truth. We've experienced it. And so he calls us to go out and tell the world, there is a God. There is a God who does what he says. Indeed, there was a day when I was miserable. There was a day when I was lost in in a mindset of pride or fear or bitterness. But then a day came, and it was like a light that shone on me. And it was God. And we are all witnesses in one way or another to a light that has shined and shone on us, where God delivered us out of the hand of sin. And he worked to bring a reversal to all that had been going on in our lives. And so we call him a redeemer the Holy One of Israel, sent to live and die 
to resurrect in us the image that's always been there, an image of him. And for his, for his sake, for his glory, he would do that not only in our church, but he would do that to anybody who came to him. The one who made the seas and the stars has the capacity and the desire to remake your heart and your mind every day. And this, this passage in Isaiah, married with the passage in Ezekiel, creates this picture of not only God who wants to change you, but a God who loves you, a God who has a plan for you to witness for him and to change people's lives by witnessing of the light that's shown in your life. But altogether, it can seem maybe a little bit of a Pollyanna dream. Oh, God can just change you, and that's all. Well, we see in Israel's history, it wasn't quite so simple. They were on a roller coaster journey of up and down and up and down and up and down. And even by Jesus' day, they were in a deep valley of pride and stubbornness. So this passage in Ezekiel about bones coming to life when the word is preached to them isn't to say that as witnesses who go out, people will just start falling at Jesus' feet when we preach. And we know that that's not the case. But it's, it's the call to hope. It's a call to possibility. It's a call to the possibility that if we preach the word through our lives and our, our mouths, it can trigger something in someone's mind that the Spirit cultivates, and then the Spirit can bring someone to Jesus. But if we never witness, a lot of people won't get those chances. Won't have as many chances to come to Jesus. And so, we have to kind of let our lives be a road that people can kind of, in a sense, walk on by seeing our example, by hearing our word, and, and kind of see what is it like to walk with Jesus. And when they see that choosing humility is actually better than trying to get your own way, that could be a pretty radical change for a lot of people. Or that to see that being patient with your spouse rather than trying to show how right you are is the best way could be pretty startling. You'd be surprised. I've been surprised at how little some people can know that I've learned at a young age and how the little I know can be the greatest blessing to people. The most simple truths are never light truths. They're always deep, even if they're common to us. So I close out this time <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's a little dry, but we're closing, so I'll survive. Um, that's all right, I'll just close. Thank you, Graziella. <laughs> oh, I know, I put it there. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, uh, no, no, I'm good. I, I'm closing up right now. It's not one of those things where the preacher says, I'm closing up and then has another 20 minutes, which I might do that in the future, and I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> Here we are. <clears throat> there are two phrases repeated in this chapter. The, it, the, number one is, you shall know that I am the Lord. And number two, you'll be one. One. And so I close with these two thoughts here. That when we get to see God work, then we know who we, what he's really about. But we only get to really know him when we step out in faith. 
and we, we take that step to obey. We take that step to receive his, his promises as actually for us and not just the other people in the room listening to the sermon. It's all about knowing that he really is the Lord in every area of our life. He really can satisfy everything within our hearts. He really can bring peace where there was chaos. He really can bring unity and reconciliation where there was hatred and bitterness. He really can bring courage where there was stumbling and stammering. He really can bring life where there was depression and anxiety. He really can bring power where there was timidity and uncertainty. He really can because he really is the Lord. The second phrase, and this is in the second half of this chapter, is he emphasizes, I'm going to make Israel and Judah one again. For a long time they had split, they were being silly, there was a civil war. And he said, not only am I going to bring you back home, where you belong, where you know you've always belonged, but I'm also going to bring you together as one nation under one king, one people with one God and one shepherd. And there's this emphasis on one, 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 one. And what makes them one is allowing God to breathe this life and this spirit into them and to receive it, and then they become one. It's not intellectual assent that creates unity. It's not just a similar experience that creates unity. It's not similar know-how and mission and purpose that creates unity. What creates the unity and the oneness is that they all follow the same shepherd. And so it is with every church. If we're all following the shepherd, we will all be drawn closer and closer together the closer we come to Christ. But if ever we are going our own way, you, know, you can expect to see some dissonance in the body of Christ, some discouragement, some butting of heads, some withdrawal, withdrawing. And so in all things, we need to be asking God to do, please do in us what, I, what we can't do for ourselves. And I'll close with this verse in Ezekiel 37. Right here at verse 14, and then the final two verses. Verse 14 says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And we close with verses 27 and 28. My tabernacle, or my sanctuary, also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. Pause. Who sanctifies Israel? Who sanctifies Israel? We do not sanctify ourselves. There's nothing a person could do to accomplish that. It is the work of God. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So I, I pair this with Nico's story because what I see in her story is a, 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 a bit of a prodigal story of going off, trying to fill the void, trying to make herself feel worthy and loved. And these, this is conversations we had. This isn't exactly just my own interpretation. Um, and it was only when she started coming back to Jesus that hole started to get filled. It started to get filled. 
and she changed. And she regained that love of Jesus and for Jesus. All because she received God. And God brought something back to life. Although she, like Israel, was at the bottom, was spiritually dead, she had lost her job, lost her apartment, didn't have supportive family or friends, she was on her own, she had lost her pride, I guess, because a lot had gone down. She lost her license, for, or was suspended for six months. And yet God brought someone into her life to lift her up. It was, her name was Shauna. And she went into the AA programs, and eventually she met her her second husband, Walt. And they both went on this spiritual journey for 14 years till he passed. And then after a year or so, a year and a half, two years of grieving, then God brings David into Nico's life. And they get married, and then they go on their own spiritual journey as well. And it was just this very steady drawing closer and closer to God. There was no, no shaming, no wagging of his finger. God was just drawing. And so it is with us. The human condition needs to be, we need to be drawn. We can't just force it. We need God to just draw us. And that is our, what we, we hope in. In the quiet moments we spend with God, that he will be drawing us. And that he will be saying to our spiritually or emotionally, however you would like to put it, dry bones, come alive. Come alive. If, um, if you don't know what to do, what he says is, come alive. Step into my promises. Don't think about the past. Don't wallow in shame or guilt. Come alive. That's what he says. Like to the paralytic in the pool of Bethesda, he says, um, what would you like me to do for you? And he says, I've been, I've been lame for all these years, 38 years. And he says, rise up, take your bed and walk. Come alive. Come alive. All, is, all, is, all there is to be done is to just start living like the reality is happening right now, not waiting for anything. And that is uh, the gift of every Christian, the privilege of every Christian, that we have been brought from death to life through the sacrifice of Jesus, that our dry bones would live, be resurrected just as his dead body was resurrected and taken to heaven. We may be resurrected if we just take God at his word and trust that his spirit will do something marvelous in us and we will be able to witness to the world as Nikki has, as Nico has, and as many of you have, witness to the world that uh, this place is not our home. We're just a passing through. Um, And that God is the one who makes it possible. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the testimonies today. We're so grateful knowing that uh, the work you've done in them, you desire and have been doing in us. Um, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fully on you, that we would be, our minds would be filled with, uh, with your glory. And that each day, our words, our thoughts, and our actions would be a worship and a praise to you. Uh, I pray blessing over Nikki and Nico, Lord, this year, that uh, your Holy Spirit would continue to take them deeper with you, and that you would shine your light through them to this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, that actually was just about a full sermon. It's okay. It was worth it.